you brought a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is where we're going to be, um, verses 6 through 15. So 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, it was about three years ago that we uh, preached, or we, I preached, uh, through the Minor Prophets, and we got to the book of Malachi uh, just about three years ago. And if you know your Bibles, Malachi has kind of these famous words in chapter 3 verse 10 it says bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test says the Lord of hosts if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need and I have been a Christian for a while and I have heard many times um, preachers and pastors use this as a way to say see you have to tithe 10%. Look, God says, test me, and if you bring your tithe into the church and don't hold back, I'll open up the, the windows of blessing and you'll be blessed. And so when we went through Malachi, I actually preached that that's not what it's saying. That as if you actually look in the Old Testament system of tithing, which lots of Christians look back to and say, see, I guess I have to tithe 10%, that was one of the tithes. If you want to be an Old Testament Christian, you actually have to tithe closer to like 33%. That's what they tithe. So then people go, I don't want to be an Old Testament Christian anymore. Uh, but we talked about on that Sunday that actually there's nowhere in the New Testament that gives us a specific number we must give. And those Old Testament principles are great and we learn from them, but they're not for us today. We don't tithe 10%. Now, what was interesting is a few weeks after that, I got in the mail a handwritten letter, which doesn't happen often, right? Who writes letters with their hands? And so I opened it, and it was from someone that watched online. I had no idea who they are. But basically, they were like, we usually like watching you online, but you are dead wrong. Christians, we have to tithe 10%. And you are holding back a blessing on your church if you don't tell them to tithe 10%. And so I don't know if they watch anymore, but it was interesting. There was, there's a lot of confusion, right, about, you know, followers of Jesus and what are we obligated to do. And, and many of you have said uh, over the last four weeks, just tell me what I have to do. Right? There's just like, it, you're not telling me what is the, like, what do I have to give? Give me a number. Right? And so that's, there's confusion around giving and generosity. So this is week four in our uh, money series. What does the Bible say about money? And so you may have noticed for the, for the last three weeks, we've just really been kind of laying the groundwork a little bit. Um, talking about overall, what's the big theme that the Bible uh, what's the, the main theme about money in the Bible? And the main theme about money and wealth and possessions is we have to be very careful with those things. Because very easily money can become the God that we worship. And, and it, it, we can become so distracted so quickly when it comes to wealth and money and possessions. And, and then we even looked at a few case studies. The rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. Well, how did these wealthy men react to a one-on-one -on -one encounter with Jesus. Um, so this morning, we're going to get really practical. And some of you are like, finally, we're going to get really practical looking at, at what I think is probably the clearest practical 
New Testament teaching about giving. If, basically, if you would ask, like, well, how does this work? How does it work for followers of Jesus when it comes to generosity and giving? And this is the text that really answers that question. So let me give you a little bit of background about what's going on in the letter to 2 Corinthians. Um, we're going to be looking at um, the second half of chapter 9. But starting all the way back in chapter 8, Paul is encouraging this church in Corinth to give. Specifically, he's asking them to give money, a collection, to help suffering Christians in Jerusalem. Um, Christians in Jerusalem specifically were suffering. They didn't have food to eat. There was a famine. They, they didn't have anything. And so they, uh, Paul saw that it was the responsibility of the other churches to give money, a collection that they could send then to Jerusalem to just to help take care of practical needs. So that's much of chapter 8. And then, and then even the first five verses of chapter 9, Paul again is reminding them of, of the collection for Christians in Jerusalem, urging them to give to this good cause. And then in verse 6, which is where we start, Paul begins by saying this, the point is this. So really he's, he's, he's wrapping up, okay, what is the point of you talking for, you know, a chapter and a half about giving to the church in Jerusalem and being generous and giving out of your abundance to help other people? He's basically in the second half of chapter 9 going to say, here's the point. Here's the conclusion to all of this talk that I'm giving about generosity. So there's three main points that I want to highlight in verses 6 through 15. And really what it's going to answer is, as New Testament followers of Jesus, what does giving and generosity look like in our lives? How does it work in God's kingdom, basically? So three main points. Um, the first point is this. Number one, giving is meant to be cheerful. <clears throat> um, verse 6, Paul says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So this is a common uh, proverb or principle that's taught all throughout the Bible, and it's actually, it's just uh, common sense, right? So if you think about a farmer, if I go out and I uh, sow plentifully, like if I, if I went out as a farmer and I'm going to plant one kernel of corn, am I going to have a big harvest? No, that makes no sense, right? The more that you sow, the more that you will reap, Right? And you will, you reap what you sow. So even we have a little kind of uh, corner garden in our, our backyard. And two years ago, we're like, let's try and grow some vegetables. So we planted uh, potatoes on one side and then carrots. Because I'm like, other vegetables are awful. Those are the two. I will eat carrots and potatoes. And I actually don't think potatoes are vegetable, technically. Uh, but uh, we planted that. Now, when I went in uh, later on to like harvest it, was I surprised? What? There's carrots? I thought I would get squash. No. Why? Because you reap what you sow. We sowed carrots, you reap carrots. You sow potatoes, you reap potatoes. And the more that you sow, the more that you reap. Right? It's just common sense. Um, the Bible talks about this all over the place. Here's two examples. Proverbs 22.8. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. Right? So in your life, if you are someone who's just going to continually sow injustice, you're not, you're going to do things that are 
uh, unjust in your life, it's going to bring calamity to you. Um, Galatians 6, Paul talks about this. He, He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh. So meaning if you sow like to the sinful part of your life, you will reap from the flesh. Uh, You'll reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. So it's just practical. If in my life, if I sow, meaning if I pursue things that are full of greed, injustice, sexual immorality, sin, uh, wickedness, what am I going to reap? I'm going to reap terrible things in my life. But if I sow um, generosity and giving and love and kindness and justice, what am I going to reap? I'm going to reap God's blessing in my life. So Paul's starting this when he's talking about generosity. He says, okay, if you sow sparingly, meaning if you're stingy, you are going to reap sparingly, meaning you'll reap God's blessings very sparingly. But if you sow bountifully, if you are generous and you live lives with open hands and you give, you are going to reap bountifully. And we're going to get into what, what exactly will we reap. But this is how Paul begins the whole thing. The principle of reaping and sowing. Verse 7, this is what he says. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Uh, for God loves a cheerful giver. So here is the clearest teaching in the New Testament about giving. You have to give what you've decided in your heart. Meaning God does not command believers to give a certain amount. Do I have to tithe 10%? No. God does not command followers of Jesus to give a certain amount. But here's what he does. He gives opportunities for all of you to give generously. Um, And we see this a few times. The idea of you are, 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 as a follower of Jesus, you have the ability to decide in your heart what God wants you to give. Acts 11.29 is another example. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Notice that it, did, it doesn't say the apostles came together and demanded that everyone give 10% to the brothers in Judea. It says, everyone, whatever you can. Okay, but I'm, oh man, I'm on a tight budget. I just lost my job. I can give $5. Great. Give what you can. I'm doing great and my business is booming. I can give $5,000 to this relief fund. Awesome. Give according to your ability. Determine in your heart what you will give. I love that then he says, not reluctantly or under compulsion, meaning not by necessity or force. God is not interested in people who are like giving reluctantly. What's that? There's a need? Fine. Ugh, stop asking me. Here, will this shut you up? That's giving Reluctantly, God, God takes no pleasure in that type of person. Or giving under compulsion where the pastor gets up and guilts you all, right? Um, here's a picture that I saw this week. Um, the verse is Malachi 3.8. Will a man rob God? And then here's the non-tithers board. Should we put that in our lobby? Wouldn't that be great? Nice board. Here's all the people that don't give. I think this is a real thing. This is not a joke. But I know that you've, you've had this experience 
where you, um, you felt that you had to give under compulsion, right? I've, I've heard of churches where seating is, well, this pew is reserved for those who give in the Platinum Club or whatever, right? It's like they're good tithers. I've, had, uh, I've heard churches that literally they publish, here's who tithes and here's who, who doesn't, really to guilt people into giving. That's giving under compulsion. Paul's like, no, no, no God's not interested in that. The non-tithers board, that's ridiculous. That is you giving because you're like, oh man, I don't want to be on the board, so I better give. That's not giving cheerfully out of the, the goodness of your heart. That's giving under compulsion. That's the opposite of how God wants you to give. So then Paul says at the end of verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver. And that word literally means God takes pleasure in such a person. When God looks at you, and if you are someone who gives generously and cheerfully, it is a joy to give. He looks on, on you with great pleasure. He says, yes, I love when people give like that. Now, the question is why? Why does God love cheerful givers? Well, it makes sense, right? Joy-motivated giving expresses contentment in God's gracious giving to us, right? When you give out of joy and happiness and cheerfulness, it's expressing, I am so content with Jesus. It is a thrill to give. That's why God loves those types of people because, because they understand the gospel and what has been done for them. So really, bottom line, God values sincerity, spontaneity, and joyful willingness. God loves people who are so sincere in their giving, who don't give because they have to, but they give because they get to. Um, if you have kids, you'll get this example. Like um, my kids, it, sound, it seems like every week, especially my two girls, they just, it feels like they pull everything out of all of their dressers and then just have it all, and then I'm just going to empty the whole closet, and this going to just be everywhere, right? So every, every, I'm like, did you try on every piece of clothing? Why is your room such a mess? And every week we go through the, okay, it's, we got to clean this up. And then usually it's just like, ugh, ugh, my arms don't work anymore, or whatever, right? And it's just a headache to get it. So it's like a drain to force your kids, please pick up your room and let's clean up. But there's been a few times when I, uh, uh, my girls go up to their room and it's very quiet and then they come down and they say, Dad, we want you to come see something. It's a surprise. And I come up and their room is like spotless and their faces are beaming and they said, we did this without even being asked. Which one am I more happy with? The one that I didn't have to, man, girls, that's amazing. Thank you for going above and beyond. We didn't even have to ask you. You just thought this is going to make mom and dad happy and less stress rather than Ah, clean up your room. Do you see the difference? So you can be, there's two types of people who give. One is, uh, fine, stop. I'll give, leave me alone. And do you think God looks on that and says, mm, I love that type of person? No. Then there's, this, there's the type of person who says, I have way more than I need. And I am thrilled to be able to give and help. And I give cheerfully. And God looks at that type of person and says, I didn't even have to ask them to give. This is amazing that they, out of the abundance of their joy, gave. So here's the principle, I think, from verse 7. I think as a New Testament follower of Jesus, we are to consider what we need to live 
right? Give, give as you're able, right? Other places, uh, Romans 16, Acts 11 says, give as you're able. Consider what you need to survive. Consider the obligations you have. I don't think God would be happy if you're like, I'm going to give everything. I don't have to pay taxes now. No. Take care of the obligations that you have, and then with the rest, live generously. And the Bible says you'll, you'll reap what you sow. Um, when we've done premarital counseling with couples, we often do a, a session with them about money and budgeting and planning. Here's, here's how I think most Christians budget uh, and plan if you do budget, and I think it's actually the, the opposite. What we do um, as, as Christians is we budget out all of the things, all of our expenses. Okay, I have to pay for this, I have to pay for the pay for this. All of our wants, I want this every month, I want this every month, I need Starbucks every day, blah, 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 blah. And then whatever we have left over, then we'll, that's what I'll give. And every couple that we've had premarital counseling with, we've said that is the opposite. You should sit down as a couple, come to the Lord and say, God, every month, what do you want us to be generous with? Here's the amount, now we're going to survive on the rest. And yes, you'll tweak it and you'll go, okay, wow, we can't, we have, okay, we got to tweak it. But then, what is that? You're starting with generosity rather than, well, if there's any left over, I'll give. No, start with the generosity. Be a cheerful giver and then go, you know what? This week, I don't need Tim Hortons every day. I don't because I'm going to be generous. So to answer some practical questions then, like, should you give to the church? Yes. Especially if you're a member. Right? If you're a member of this church, you signed a membership covenant saying, I'm going to support the church financially so that Andrew and Don can live and have a salary. And we're going to keep the lights on and we're going to do ministry. How much should you give? I don't know. Decide in your heart. Listen, as long as I'm here, I will never guilt you into giving. Because that's the worst type of giver. God's not happy with that type of giving. But you should give. And ask the Lord, God, what, what do you want me to give? Giving is meant to be cheerful. That's Paul's first point. Secondly, you give to get to give. So verse 8, he says this, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So Paul is saying, God, this type of generous giving, a cheerful giver, God's going to make his grace abound to you. Did you notice how many alls are there? You'll, you'll have all sufficiency, all things, at all times, so that you can abound in every good work. It's like all, all. Paul's saying, God is going to give you so much, all things, all time, so that you can abound in good works. Then in verse 9, uh, he quotes, he says, uh, As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So Paul is quoting Psalm 112, verse 9. And Psalm 112, the whole thing is, is describing what a righteous person looks like. What, is it, what does it look like for someone to be a moral, upright Lover of God. What does that man look like? And if you read Psalm 112, there's descriptions. It's someone who fears God. 
It's someone who is gracious and merciful in their uh, day-to-day lives. It says it's someone whose heart is firm. It's someone who trusts God. And then one of the descriptions of a righteous person is what Paul quotes. It's someone who distributes freely. It's someone who gives to the poor. So a marker of someone who is a solid follower of God is generosity. So then he goes on, verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So this is what Paul is saying. God is going to give you what you need. Right? Isn't it amazing that it says God is the one who supplies seed to the sower. So no more of, I earned my paycheck, it's my money. Nope. God gave you that. God supplies the seed to the sower. The reason you have a paycheck is because God supplied it. Right? So God gives you what you need. He provides seed to the sower. And then it says that he then multiplies your harvest. And one, it's a harvest of righteousness. If you live a generous life, it's going to produce righteousness in you. And then he says in verse 11, you are going to be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. And the result of you living generously is that people are going to praise God. So here's the principle. As a follower of Jesus, the more that you are generous... Meaning the more that you sow, the more God will provide for you. You reap what you sow. But the reason is so that you will then have even more to give. You give to get, to give, to get, to give. It's it's meant to be a continual uh, outflow. And the point is, God blesses those who are generous so that in turn, you can be even more generous. Like, that's, that's what he's saying. He's saying, if you are a generous person and you give, God will give back to you. But don't let it stop there. God will give back to you so that you can give more. Um, in the last church we were at, there was this incredible couple um, named Ian and Marilyn. And uh, they were just very wealthy people. He... Um, he designed uh, heating and cooling systems for massive buildings in downtown Vancouver. Think like Rogers Arena, big apartments. And like, okay, we got to keep this place cool and hot. And so he designed all these systems. He was a very smart man and very, very wealthy because he had incredible contracts with all of these high-rise apartments and sports centers and things like that. But Ian and Marilyn were unbelievably generous and they gave, they gave, and they gave. And more than, more than just giving to the church, they were just so generous. Uh, many times they would have a, a church staff party for everyone on staff and all of their families. Which And in that church, that would have probably been like 45 people, 50 people. And they would have them over to their house, and their house was beautiful. And they would say, we're, ha- we're making you all steak tonight. And you're like, what? And we're making you barbecued shrimp skewers. And we got this beautiful grape juice wink 
uh, and it's like down in the cellar, and it's amazing. And they would just lavish, like, here, you work hard at the church. Here, we're going to bless you. And not just staff at the church. They were so kind to everyone. Um, they asked Molly and I, before we had kids, we would house sit for them, which um, when you live in like a 700-square-foot basement uh, suite, and then you go and house sit at like a mansion, it was like, this is a vacation for us. Their shower, you walk into a full, and there's, there's more than one jet. There's six jets in this this is amazing. And then they would pay us to house it for them. And I'm like, I should, this, we feel like we should pay you. But they were just so generous. And before we go on our vacation, we stocked the fridge for you guys. Have a great time house sitting. It was like, they were so generous. And you wonder, why does God keep blessing this man with contract after contract after contract? And, Money and money and money because you reap what you sow. This couple said, we're going to make money, but we're not going to hoard it. And we're not going to just buy all the fancy toys for us. We're going to use what God's given us and we're going to roll it back out. And we're going to provide for people and be generous. You, you give to get to give. Now, here's the issue with the prosperity gospel. we got to go a little bit on a tangent the prosperity gospel is so dangerous because there is a sliver of truth to it. Right? And I've heard people like, oh, well, prosperity preachers use the Bible, though. All false teachers use the Bible. All of them. They just twist it. Right? I heard someone say, discernment is not necessarily knowing the difference between right and wrong. Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. So the prosperity gospel stops short of what the Bible actually says. The prosperity gospel says, you give so that you get. And that's it. So you sow, and they'll use language like this, you sow generously, and then God has to give it back to you because he wants you to be rich. So I'm sure you've seen TV uh, 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 where they say, okay, we want you to sow a seed into our ministry in faith. If you sow $100, God's going to give you back $1,000. But then it's, And then it stops there because God wants you to have a Cadillac and a big house, and he wants you to buy a Rolex, and he wants you to be rich and wealthy. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does teach if you give, God will reward you. But the whole point is so that you go, oh, look at all my money. No, the point is that you go, who can I give this to now? How can I just keep rolling this out so that God continues to bless you, so that you continue to give? See, the prosperity gospel is so damaging because it's offering you what your sinful flesh already wants. Come to Jesus, and you'll have lots of money. That's what sinful Andrew wants. That's not what God wants. God says, I want you to be generous, and yes, I'll bless you, so that you can just keep being generous. I think sometimes we think, or rather, sometimes we just aren't generous because we don't believe God in this. And we say, if I give my money away, though, and if I lived generously, is God actually going to give me enough to survive? And can, can I just point your eyes again to verse 8? God is able to make all grace abound to you so that, what? Having all sufficiency in all things at all times. If you give your money away and live generously, God will take care of you so abundantly 
that you will have opportunities to be more and more and more and more generous. You give to get to give. Lastly, point number three, generosity affirms your confession of faith. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, here it is, that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon us. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. By the church in Corinth giving to this cause for the church in Jerusalem, it says the needs of the saints are going to be taken care of. Your brothers and sisters in Christ can now eat. Isn't that amazing? Praise God that their needs are met and their hearts are rejoicing and praising God. And then in verse 13 he says, your submission to this, meaning your giving to this, flows out of your confession of the gospel of Christ. What that means is our generosity is very connected to our confession of the gospel. Your generosity as a follower of Jesus is evidence of your belief in the gospel. It's one of the evidences. Like, right, we talk about um, how do we know if someone is, is actually saved or not, right? And I know that we use the phrase, well, no one can judge a person's heart, which is true. Really, like only God fully 100% knows. But there's ways that we know. There's signs. Generosity is one of the signs. How do I know that that person truly is a born-again believer? Man, look at how generous they are. It's not the only sign, right? The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. The idea of uh, are you growing in these areas that you go, man, that... That guy that was uh, not a believer, now he's a believer, look at, he's growing in his self-control. I think that's an evidence that the Spirit of God is in him. So there are ways, there's evidences that we look to uh, fr from outside, the, the, the behavior of someone that we go, ooh, I think that's evident that their heart is changed. And generosity is one of those evidences. Paul says that your submission to this your generosity doesn't just come from nowhere. It comes from an overflow of your confession of the gospel of Jesus. It's an evidence of that. See, this is so key to us. Many of us grew up in um, like religious systems. Uh, and re religion is basically the opposite of the gospel. Many of us grew up in these kind of systems and structures of religion where you're earning your salvation, you're working really hard, you're proving that you are good enough, and, and, and then giving in generosity under a religious system looks completely different than giving in generosity under the gospel. If it, it, under religion, you would say, I am generous, therefore I'm accepted by God, right? I'm giving, therefore God accepts me. Under religion, the motivation for your generosity is fear and insecurity. I got to make sure that I'm given enough. God, God's watching me. I'm afraid that I'm not going to make it if I don't give and serve enough. So what's your motivation then? Well, fear of God. And not the good fear of God, 
right? That we should all, but just bad fear, and he's going to smite me if I don't give enough. And then in, in a religious system, we would say, I'm generous in order to get things from God. But here's the difference. In the gospel, you are already accepted by God through Christ, therefore you're generous, right? Your, gener- your generosity and your giving doesn't make you acceptable before God. Jesus does. And so the gospel says, Jesus went to the cross. He died a death that you deserved. He rose from the dead, meaning it was, uh, it was paid in full. Faith is just, or, or, or following Jesus is just saying, I believe in that. Faith in Christ. I am saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. That's the gospel. And then generosity flows out of that. I'm already accepted by God. Um, The gospel says the motivation for our generosity is just grateful joy. Look at what Christ has done for me. How could I not give? He he literally gave everything. Uh, In the gospel, we're generous because we get God. Not things from God. We get God. I want to delight in Jesus. See, see then, then when we give and we're blessed and God gives back to us, if our motivation is, I just want Jesus, we won't be tempted to hold on to it. I gave and God blessed me. I just want to give again. Why? I get Jesus. Um, One of the markers that someone has truly been born again and confessed the gospel of Christ, one of the markers is you will live a life of generosity. But here's what we often do. Because we, we either misunderstand the gospel or we slip back into our old religious ways. Oftentimes, we try and just manufacture fruit on our own. We're like, okay, I have to have some kind of evidence that I love Jesus. And so I'm going to try and produce good things on my own. That's just the religious way of doing things. I have to pull myself up by my bootstraps and be good enough. When really it's the gospel that overwhelms us. It's the gospel that continually stirs up our affections for Jesus. And it makes us want to obey him. We shouldn't just obey Jesus. We should want to obey Jesus. Right? Don't don't just go and clean your room because someone told you to. Go clean your room because you love your parents. Children, listen. But right, our motivation isn't just, well, I have to obey God, so I better obey God. The motivation is, my heart has been so transformed, I get to obey Jesus. I want to obey Jesus. Um, uh, A pastor gave an illustration once of, right, right, if if you had a tree in your backyard, an apple tree, and it wasn't producing fruit, one of the things you could do is go buy a bag of apples from the store and then just nail apples to the tree. So then, oh, look how, look how beautiful my tree's doing. That's what many of us do with our good works, right? It, I got to produce something, so then I'm going to try so hard on my own, and I'm going to nail apples to the tree so it looks like I have fruit. When in reality, if your tree's not bearing fruit, what do you do? Well, you check out the roots. You give food to the tree. You prune the tree. And then what happens? Usually then, it, 
that brings life to the tree and then it begins to bear fruit. That's the exact same thing with our hearts. It's the gospel that goes deep and it examines the roots of our hearts and it feeds our souls and then God comes and he prunes us so that we'll bear more and more and more fruit. That's the motivation. Especially with you, like, listen, we could all leave here and be like, I feel really guilty. I guess I'm just going to try and go and be more generous because I have to. Nailing apples to the tree. No. Meditate on the gospel and that the fact that Jesus literally gave everything to purchase you for his kingdom. And then every day, speak the gospel to your heart and allow God to prune you and you will bear fruit and generosity will flow out of that. It's an evidence that you understand the gospel. Notice that Paul never guilts the Corinthians. He doesn't say, you, you bad Christians, not giving enough, shame on you. No, what does he say? He says, listen, if you're generous, it's going to maximize your joy. You, you want to you have joy in your life? Give your money away. Wait, that seems so upside down. Yeah. Paul's like, if you want to, your generosity is going to maximize your joy. You're going to help people in need, brothers and sisters of Christ who can't eat. You're going to help them. Most importantly, Corinth, you're going to bring glory and honor to Jesus. Should that not be motivation enough? People are going to look at your generosity and they're going to give praise to God in heaven. So here's the summary for us. As followers of Jesus, what does generosity and giving look like in our lives? Well, one, it should be cheerful. We should not give reluctantly or under compulsion. We shouldn't give dragging our feet and begrudgingly going, oh, fine, I'll give because I have to. God, listen, God loves cheerful givers. If you're a cheerful giver, God takes great pleasure in you. Um, as you give generously, what you're going to notice is that God is going to reward you. Um, I've seen this time and time again. Times when I and Molly and I have given money and we've helped people and we've done things, God inevitably, time after time after time again, whoa, whoa, why would someone give that to us? Oh, there's extra money that came in. Wow, this is amazing. God does this. He's not lying. If you're generous, God will reward you, but don't let it stop there. God rewards you and you reap what you sow so that you continue. Now who, can I, now who can I bless with this? God's rewarded me for my generosity. How can I be more generous now? How can I just joyfully keep giving away what God has blessed me with? And then lastly, generosity is an affirmation that you believe the gospel and you trust in Jesus. So again, we've always asked like kind of a, a, a hard question at the end of each thing. Like if you, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and you go, I give nothing. I hold on to every penny I make. This would be a time to examine your heart and go, okay, Lord, is there something off here about what I believe about the gospel? Because an evidence that you believe the gospel, Paul says, is that you will be generous. And so if your life lacks generosity, 
It would be good to go to the Lord and say, Lord, why? Why am I so stingy? Why? Don't blame. I'm a Mennonite. I have to be. Don't blame that. Why am I so, why do I hold on to money? Why don't I give it away? Why, why do I live like this? Ask the Lord. Have I, am I missing something about the gospel? And remind yourself about who Jesus is and what he's done. And then begin to take steps to, to joyfully Give. So, Father, I just thank you for um, this teaching in your word. Uh, God, I just thank you that um, under the new covenant, we aren't commanded to give a certain amount because I think you knew that that would be so easy for us to just go, sweet, check, gave. My heart doesn't even have to be in it. And we do that with so many things, God. We just have our checklist, and then I go, what's the bare minimum? And I can just check, 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 and I'm good to go. And our hearts could be so far from you, Jesus. So thank you that you don't command us to give a certain amount, but what you do command us to do is just to be generous. To decide in our hearts what we ought to give, and then to give cheerfully. Um, God, I think many of us don't experience the blessing of giving um, because we, re we really think that you're going to hold out on us. Like there's, there's massive joy and blessing that comes with being generous. And I think so many of us miss out on that. Because we go, well, if I give it away, is God actually going to take care of me? So God, I pray even this week practically that you would give us all opportunities to be generous. And I know that that's going to look different for each one. But God, I'm asking for all of us, this week, give us an opportunity to be a cheerful giver, and I pray that we would see the principles that we've talked about begin to play out in our lives, that it brings joy to us, it brings glory to you, that you reward so that we can keep being generous. I just pray that we would take that step of discipleship, not because we want to be accepted by you, not because we want to earn things from you, but because, God, we've already been accepted by you. Help us not just to obey, but help us to want to obey. Change our hearts, Jesus. Thank you that you didn't hold back on us, but you generously gave all of yourself. And so help us to do the same, Jesus. And so I just pray all of this in your mighty name. Amen.